Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Margaret Verbal is the author of When Two Feathers Fell from the Sky. Margaret is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Her first novel, Maud's Line, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her second novel, Cherokee America, has recently been listed by the New York Times as one of the 100 notable books of the year for 2019. So it wasn't so recent. But anyway, she lives in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss when two feathers fell from the sky. Thank you. Nice to be here. I am I am still recovering from the feeling that you created when Two Feathers and her horse fell through the tank, got stuck underground in the caves and like couldn't emerge. I'm I was having like claustrophobia induced reading at that at what happened afterwards. So thank you, I guess, for uh, <laughs> the immersive read, if I, I should say. Uh, but glad you enjoyed it, sort of. <laughs> I did enjoy it. I, I found it all very fascinating, especially all of the research that you did about how this is what was happening in your neighborhood in Nashville and how you've even discovered how this, you know, the book starts with a sweeping sort of tale of where this place came to be and how we got rooted in that place and how, and then we find out that you even found like hippopotamus bones or something like that near your back tree or I don't know, something. So tell, tell, tell me a little more about how your neighborhood and home inspired the story. Well, I was raised in a neighborhood in Nashville that we knew as children had been built over the ruins of a zoo that Nashvillians absolutely loved. That park and that zoo had been there from the late 1880s to 1931. And it was, if you talk to people's parents and grandparents, they thought it was the most magnificent thing in Nashville. Everybody just loved it. People went there to court and to have fun and you know do all sorts of things. And there were remnants of that park and zoo all around us. 
And as a child, I had always heard that a big tree that was behind my next door neighbor's fence was had been where either the hippopotamus or the rhinoceros den had been. Now, we didn't know which one, okay? And probably at the time, we didn't know the difference between a hippopotamus and a rhinoceros because, you know, we, we were... In the living in the 1950s, and you know, kids didn't have all that information. But anyway, we like to dig around things, and so we got into digging around the roots of that tree because it was sort of overturned because it was so old. And we found this huge bone, and it was a shoulder bone. And so we, you know, we were so thrilled. And one of us ran in to get a father. You know, hey, go get your parents. So we got my neighbor's father. And uh, he came out and he looked at it and, and he was, he was a real, he was a real straight up guy. He was a devout Catholic. And he said, it's disrespectful to dig up bones, put that back in there. So we had to put the bone back into the ground. And I never did know if it was a hippopotamus bone or a rhinoceros bone, or of course it could have been any other kind of large animal bone for all I knew, but I always, you know, thought it was one of those. And so when I started researching to write this book, I thought, I need to find that out. And in my research, I found one mention of a hippopotamus at the Glendale Park Zoo in 1926. And I found no mention ever of rhinoceros. So I set the book in 1926 when I knew that hippo was there. Wow. I know. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that story. I know. I love it too. It tickles me to this day. <laughs> <laughs> and then how did you come up with the whole rest of the narrative? Why Why this diver? How you, the recovery, by the way, the way you described what it was like to get injured as a performer back then. And of course, there's no safety net, literally and figuratively, right? It's like she just plunged. She had no resources. Even taking the train home would have been based on her rib accident, which was like very painful for her to take the train all the way back to her home. Like what happens? How do you recover? All of that, you know, talk about, just tell me a little bit about about this and how the central feature of this girl's life too and how, you know, every every dive, every performance is, she's taking her life into her hands. Well, I based her on female performers in Wild West shows. And what we, I, I read a couple of books on that. And I'd gotten interested in that because I was up in, with Cherokee's called the Cherokee Outlet, which is really the northern part of Oklahoma. I was up there in Ponca City a couple of years before I wrote the book. And I had run into, I was in a museum or in an actually a historic home, and there was a museum in the basement. And I run into what was left of the 101 Ranch. And it was astonishing. I'd never seen anything like it. It was the last surviving Wild West show. So I got interested in the 101 Ranch, which was world known at the time it existed, which was for decades. I mean, if people came from Europe, they went to that ranch. Uh, Like people go to New York or, or Disneyland today, they'd go to that ranch. 
And it was just a worldwide phenomenon. They sent entertainers all over the world. And so I got interested in these cowgirls. And they were doing just astonishing tricks on on these horses. And they were, you know, they were uh, wrangling bulls and doing all sorts of things that, you know, is almost unimaginable. And I mean, the, I think the only one that we really know anything about now is Annie Oakley. But, you know, there was just a whole slew of them. And so, and, and some of them were diving on these horses off these platforms. That was a big, that was a big thing from about 1890 to really into the, you know, it died out in the in, in about the 1930s, but it went on until about the 1950s. And in fact, I think there are a couple of places today where they're still doing it. I mean, it seems bizarre to us now, you know, <laughs> it did to me at least. But these people were doing this, and everybody just thought it was glorious entertainment. Just loved it. So I thought that was a good thing to have uh, my heroine do. And I discovered in my research that there actually had been a diving tank in the Glendale Park Zoo. And there had been female performers diving off of platforms onto horses. So it was sort of a natural thing to make her do. I feel like this is, what was the Hugh Jackman movie? Did you see, do you know what I'm talking about? Where where he, the, the famous Hugh Jackman movie where he the he like basically finds establishes a circus in his. Oh yeah, I did not see that movie. I know I know what you I know what you're talking about. You should like, see you, the movie. I, I love seeing anything he's in. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> I know he's great, and he's good looking. Uh. Anyway, it, there's that. It's the same sort of entertainment shock value. This is how people congregated before, and how okay. and yet. And yet to be in the mind and backstage, I found super right. fascinating, particularly, you know, some of the dynamics and some of even the racial dynamics and what it means to be Native American and to have then having to rely on people who owned all the caves to help out, right? And all of that and and the different things that sort of simmered in the community. So was that sort of, was that based on the times as well or no? Well, you know, Really, basically, at, at the at, at the core of the novel, I was trying to write an entertaining novel, yeah, but yet a significant novel, and I was really trying to write about race and about you know fundamentally at one level about the Cherokees and the Creeks and the Shawnee being run out, mm-hmm. what is now Central Tennessee, and. So, you know, I had always been uh, concerned with that. Since I was a child, I was concerned with that history and how that history was told. But I was also raised in the segregated South. So I was interested in writing about that because even as a child and and growing up in it, not knowing, you know, I'd never been North. But you could tell that, you know, it was just crazy. It was crazy to treat people that way. And none of it made any sense. And the rules, you know, there were official rules and then there were unofficial rules. And everybody was always negotiating those rules. And so I was interested in writing about that. And so I was able to get, I was able to get both of those themes into that book. And, and I think a pleasant way, in a, play that, in a way that's not alarming. Right, right. Well, I mean, the best way to get any point across is through telling a story, right? I feel like <laughs> That's right. You don't want to raise people's hackles in order to teach them anything. 
Right. Exactly. Very true. Okay. We can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a 100 times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. So you were the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Like, what yes. was that What was that like? How did it, tell me about that moment in your life when you found that news out. What, what, tell, what is that like? <laughs> Well, I was in my basement office. I I have two basement offices and actually a literary study upstairs, which I can't use because it's too for Zoom because it's too far from my router. But I was in my other basement office down here and I was writing an email and phone rang. And it was my agent's secretary. And she said, Lynn wants to talk to you. Have you heard yet? And I said, her what? And she said, well, let me let Lynn was there. So Lynn Nesbitt, my agent, got on the phone and she said, first thing she says, now, Margaret, she says, I've got wonderful news for you. She says, you didn't win this prize. <laughs> and I said, okay. She said, but you were runner up. And she said, that's going to change your life. And then she told me where to find because the word finalist for a Pulitzer Prize and how the Pulitzers are done as opposed to other prizes is a little bit different. So she explained all that. And she said, this is fabulous. And she said, I would have called you two hours ago, but I had to call your publisher because we had to get the badge on the paperback book. And, you know, had to be sure that was done. And, and, and you know, and she was right. It did change my life. It was a life. It's a life changing thing. And how did it change your life? Well, because... <laughs> It gives you a lot of credibility. And, you know, there are not many people that who are finalists for the Pulitzer and things like fiction. There are a lot of finalists for Pulitzers and, and Pulitzer winners in journalism. Mm -hmm. But in fiction, that's not true. And so it gave me instant credibility. And, and now if I say anything, people think I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm talking about. So <laughs> I, I try not to sound too 
emphatic when I talk because I know there's a built-in willingness to believe me. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I should not be believed in whatever it is I'm saying. (laughs) Does that, did it make you feel more pressure to write something like amazing? Like, or or was it more a relief? Like you don't have to prove anything anymore. It was more of a relief. Mm -hmm. So when you tackle a project like this, because it's, there's research and there's topography and there's backstory and there's narrative and character development and all the good things that go into a novel. How do you tackle that? Is it in your basement study with post-its all over the walls or do you allow yourself to go upstairs and and put (laughs) papers all over the carpet? Like, Give me a visual of how you're doing this. Well, I no longer write in the basement. I write upstairs in my study. But well, a couple of Ma's line, I didn't have to do much research on. I read a couple of books, three or four books, maybe, about 1927, because it's a it's a year that's written about a great deal. And so I wanted background on that. But other than that, I didn't have to do any research for that. Cherokee America, I did a lot of research for Cherokee America, and that took years and years of research. I did a lot of research for when Two Feathers Fell from the Sky. That took about maybe a year and a half of research. I have a novel coming out a year from this April. I did no research for it at all. So it varies on what I'm trying to write about. And tell me about that novel. Well, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's still going back and forth between my editor and me. I think think we're in the last phases of that. So it hadn't been sent to production yet. But it's a short novel. And it's got a main character who ranges from six years old to about 11 years old in the novel. And it's set in middle America. And they haven't given me my talking points. That's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll find out. We'll find out later. (laughs) What What kind of books do you like to read? Well, I read a lot of nonfiction. And in part, that's because if I'm writing a novel... I don't want the voice of somebody else's novel in my head. I don't want it to interfere with whatever I'm writing. So at certain times, I won't read fiction at all until I get a voice really nailed down in a novel. I just read nonfiction. Right at the moment, I'm reading a biography of Oscar Wilde and you know, thoroughly enjoying it. It's completely unlike anything in my life or anything going on, and, but it's a brilliant biography. And so I'm enjoying it a great deal. Amazing. So when you're not writing, researching, and reading and doing all the literary things, what, what's like your go-to pastime? What do you really enjoy? What's a guilty pleasure? Well, I exercise every day. And of course, I, I have another job too that I have done for 40 years. And some I, I do that sporadically. It depends on me traveling and being up in front of people. And so I haven't done a lot of it in the last two years. So I'm getting ready to spend two weeks in April doing that job. What job is that? And what job is that? I train people how to ask for organ donations. And I have done that for a long, long time. Hmm. And still continue to do it. I don't do it as much as I used to because travel was killing me. But I, I still do it. And I still enjoy it. Still love it. So that whole fee And I publish in that field. So that, that takes... That takes time, too. Wow. Amazing. 
Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Well, I think my main advice is that you have to keep writing. Writing is a craft. It's not just like, oh, I've got an inspiration or this interesting thing happens. I think I'll write it down. It's a real craft. And most people get discouraged before they get really good at that craft. And the only way to get really good at it is to do it every single day. And so that's what I would say. I've been up this morning writing. I get up every morning and write. And, you know, it's like like practicing for a sports event or the Olympics or something. You got to do it every day. You just can't think about doing it. You can't just talk about doing it. You can't just talk to other writers. You got to write. Perfect. I love it. Well, Margaret, thank you. I hope that you get out of your basement and <laughs> I'm like having, I'm having this like fear, you know, what happens if we're on zoom and you keep choking and next thing you know, I'm like, wait, help. <laughs> you know, you're alone in Nashville. I'm assuming like in the bottom of your house, like help. Oh my gosh. Anyway, No, I, I think I'll be okay. Okay. All right. Where are you? I'm in New York. I'm in New York city. Oh, you yeah. are? Okay. All yeah. right. Well, is it cold up there today? Not as bad as usual. So, you know, how about there? Uh, you know, it's, it's raining here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a nasty day. Oh, yeah. sorry. Well, good day to podcast. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> good day to write. All right. All right. Thank you so much okay. for your time. Okay. You. Nice to meet you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.